0: Good morning, and welcome to the orchard for week one of our new series on the book of Genesis. And for those of you who've been with us through the book of John, there could not be a sharper left turn than to go from the Gospel of John, following Jesus and what he said and where he walked and, and what he did, to the book of Genesis. And if you're just joining us, you are in for a fun ride as we're going to go back to the first book of the Bible and see what God has for us. And, and I just want to say something off the bat is that Genesis, like Revelation, is a very unique book. Both books uh, tempt us to show up with our own agenda, to show up with our own perspectives and hopes of what a teacher will say and not say. And so I just want to state a few things up front for this Genesis series. First of all, we will not be studying Genesis as a scientific textbook. And that's because Moses didn't write Genesis as a scientific textbook. He had something far greater, far grander, now, I have my deep convictions on what I believe about these things, but, but I want to say this. In this series, there will be times when you will be disappointed by what I do address or about what I don't address. There will also be times where you will be challenged by what, things that you thought were true or did not hurt before. And overall, my prayer always is that we would be people of God's word to begin to see the beauty of it, the beauty of God's word. And like I say over and over, that the entire Old Testament points to Jesus. And that's what we're going to do in Genesis. In the book of John, we took great effort to look at what Jesus said and what he did and where he went to find the true character of who he is. And my hope is that we would begin to have a lens that we look through, that that, that knowledge of Jesus would be a lens that we view the Bible and life through. And as we move into Genesis... I want Jesus to remain the lens that you view what we're going to study with. Tim Keller tells an illustration about the movie Sixth Sense with Bruce Willis. Some of you haven't seen it yet, and you should go back and get the VCR tape and watch it. It's incredible. I won't give spoilers away. But the movie Sixth Sense, if you saw it, you'll remember the first time you saw it was unlike any other time. I remember sitting there in the movie theater getting goosebumps at the ending. I remember that moment is something was revealed at the end of the movie that forever changed the way I viewed the movie. And then if you go back and view The Sixth Sense a second time, you can never watch it the same again. You just can't. You will always watch it with a new lens, going through, looking for new clues and new triggers and indications that you already know are leading to the ultimate revelation. You go back looking for those clues. This is how I want us to read Genesis, through the lens of Jesus Christ. I've told you repeatedly the Bible points to him, and so as we go back to Genesis, I want us to look for those clues and those triggers and those indications of a revelation that's coming. Reading Genesis without that lens often leads us to read it through our modern lens and reading Genesis through the Western American lens will, will bring with us assumptions and judgments and conclusions that the author never intended. So we go back and read Genesis through a lens of Jesus in the cultural context, the ancient context, the ancient culture that it was actually written in. And in that, we're going to see the true beauty of God's plan become come forward. Because there are things in Genesis that absolutely are relevant to your life this very day. And life-changing for when you leave this room or this sermon that can change us. What Genesis does is it sets the stage that Jesus will someday walk out on. It sets the stage for what we stand on. So my goal as we go through the book of Genesis is to look at these large, looming themes and and points that God is making about himself and about us and about life and what it means for us today. Now, in Genesis, we are dropped down into the middle of a cosmic narrative, a moment. And what you must do when you place yourself in the middle of a narrative is to ask some questions, not give assumptions. Again, not standing outside of it, not standing outside of this narrative from my modern context, but putting myself inside of it. And theologian Tim Mackey says that it, when it comes to Genesis, before we begin reading, we should ask a few questions that will help us. He says this. First of all, we ask, who are we in this? Like, what does Genesis say we are? Who are we? When it comes to Genesis, what is happening? What's happening in Genesis 1 and 2? What's happening? In, what happened before Genesis 1? also what are we doing what do we find ourselves doing in Genesis what went wrong and that's next week and then what is the solution when we start with questions instead of agendas we'll find a beautiful tapestry laid out from Genesis and again the stage set that Jesus will walk out on so you guys ready to start page one verse one let's go there Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters. Much of the first chapter, this, this first chapter in the original language is actually poetry in form and language. It's beautiful. The author is telling us here that there was this nothingness, and then we get this picture of a formless and empty earth and darkness covering the deep. The poetry here should be conjuring up imagery for us. It would for an ancient culture. It would for those going forward. This darkness partnered with the the wild, deep waters is painting a picture of chaos, something that is uninhabitable, something without water, dark, deep waters, something without without light and, and land, dark, deep waters. This place is where no inhabitants could survive, and yet the next part of the verse gives us a contrast to this emptiness and formlessness. It says, And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Over the chaos, the Spirit of God, His very presence, hovers. God's presence, His Spirit here, His Spirit is called Ruach. Now, some of you have a cold, and this will be rather easy for you, but I want the rest of you to try it, and maybe it will conjure up something else for some of you. But let's try it. Say ruach. Ruach. Ruach Ruach is mentioned all throughout the Old Testament over 378 times. It's the same word used in places like Job 26, 13. His spirit, his ruach, made the heavens beautiful. His ruach, his spirit, his presence hovering over the waters. Ruach Hakodesh means holy spirit. That is, that is the Holy Spirit. The word Ruach also means breath. Spirit and breath. God's spirit above the chaos. But it's important to remember breath as well. God said, Let there be light, and there was light. So we have this hovering ruach, and then it speaks, it breathes. And here is the illustration from Mackie. He says, place your hand in front of your mouth. Go ahead and do that, whether you're at home or here, and, and, and breathe. <sighs> now, I know this is rocket science, but, but you, you, you felt it, but you didn't see it. But now, I want you to speak and say, let there be light. And, and the ruach, your breath, goes forth in words. ruach, God's spirit, speaks. Breath, his breath, his ruach went forth. So in three verses, we're three verses in, we see God the creator present in the beginning, God. We have the ruach, his spirit, hovering. And then we have these words being spoken. First three verses. And if I told you that we were gonna look back with the lens of John and Jesus, and we're gonna look back on the first page of the Bible in the first three verses, and I said, um... We have something present here already. We can see the Trinity of God present right here on the first page of Genesis. The Trinity is the mystery of the Father and the Son and the Ruach HaKodesh, all present in one. Father, Son, and Spirit. And so we have verse one, God is creating. Verse two, we have the Ruach, the Spirit hovering. But where's Jesus in these verses? I've mentioned him, but where is he? We look through our lens of John, and and did you catch it? Because in verse 3, God speaks, and the word goes forth. And John 1, which we started a year and a half ago or something, um, is also a part of the Bible that starts with a poem. It starts with a poem just like Genesis, with the same beginning, actually. And John, inspired by the rock HaKodesh, writes something that maybe Moses, when writing Genesis, didn't yet John 1, one, in the beginning, the word already existed. The word is Jesus. In the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God. The word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. He created everything through him. God created through the word, that is Jesus, which is what we see in Genesis as the ruach speaks. And as you said, let there be light and felt the spirit go forth, as the words left, and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Just put a little check mark there by the light. We'll come back to that. So we have the Trinity present on page one. In the first three verses, we have God the creator, we have the spirit, and we have Jesus Do you see how we're already, we see that Genesis is setting the stage for the rest of the Bible? It's settling some truth that we need to know so that we can stand upon it as we walk through that Jesus stood upon. Genesis is revealing things to us through the lens of Jesus that the ancients did not know because they did not yet have the revelation that John had that the Word was present and that the Word was Jesus. The Trinity is a mystery. And within the mystery of the Trinity, of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, we have something. In that, in that Trinity, we have unconditional love in that Trinity. We have relentless joy. We have unshakable unity within the Trinity. What is happening here in creation is that something something is being birthed out of Trinity, which is being birthed out of that love, being birthed out of that unity, being birthed out of that joy, which is vastly different Creation, it's a vastly different creation than we find in other creation epics and accounts from this time and others will look at. You see, other creation accounts are most often the results of duality. But here, God is creating love out of Trinity, birthing it not the result of a violent eruption or a battle of duality. God is doing something different. When I, when I hold up the creation account versus the many ancient, everyone that I've read of the ancients and even the moderns, what I see is that God is doing something different. He's saying something different. And he's saying something different about himself and about you and about this world we live in. One thing that's interesting here that we see is that God right off the bat creates light. He creates light. Now, this theme of light runs through the entirety of the Bible. There are books, there are many books written on it. The light from Genesis goes throughout the Bible to Revelation. The light of God is good. It's called Tove in Genesis. But yet the sun wasn't created at this point. It wasn't created until day four. So this light that God creates, it's not the sun. This light is different. This light is of God. In fact, if you go forward to Revelation, you find this same light present. See, in Revelation, the world will be renewed and restored. And we find a light present in Revelation 22, 5. It says, they will not need a lamp nor a light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The same way in Genesis, God starts with this light. We will finish with the light of our Lord Jesus himself claimed, I am the light of the world. He's not saying, I am the sun in the sky. He's discussing this poetry of Genesis that echoes and connects to Revelation. John writes about that in his letter on on Jesus' teaching about light. John says, God is light and in him is no darkness. God's first work through the spoken ruach is this. He illuminates. And it is tov. Genesis six. Then God said, "Let there be space between the waters that separates the waters of heaven, the atmosphere, from the waters of the earth." And that is what happened. God this, made this space separate the waters of the earth and the waters of heavens, and called it sky. Genesis nine. Then God said, "Let the waters beneath the sky float together in one place, so that dry ground may appear." And to us, this all seems fine. We get this. We've we've read it. We uh, you know. He's creating things, sky and and and, and ground but notice God has still not created inhabitants. God is creating something else that is necessary. God brings something to the chaos and sets everything right before he ever brings someone or something into it. What God, the Ruach, the word is creating, the first thing that he is creating is order. That is what the first of Genesis is about. That God is creating order in chaos. We had this darkness and this wild deep waters and over that God creates order. The first thing he establishes with this light is time. He says it was dark and it was night the first day. I mean, he established, the first order he establishes is time. And let me ask you, what do you know is gonna happen tonight? Tomorrow morning, what do you know is going to happen? There was an order created that now we fit into is established that we walk in. The second thing he establishes here is the weather and the order between the chaotic waters. The third thing he brings to order is the land and there's flora and vegetation and, and there's the order of agriculture as things are, there's seeds and planting and blooms inside the orders that he's already establishing the first thing God brings to the chaos, to his creation, is order. 1 Corinthians 14, God is not a God of disorder. He's got a peace. And the word shalom for peace means everything being in his right place. And that's what God is doing here. He's a God who brings things into the rightful time and the rightful place. There are many who assume the order of God here in creation, but also in his purposes for humans. We assume the order of God for his calling on us, is one of control. That God, when he calls us to have moral order, or integrity, or order in our character, or order in our marriage, we think that that is God or religion wanting control. But the order of God is not control. It's something far more beautiful. There's a quote by G.K. Chesterton I wanna read you. The more I consider Christianity, the more I found that while it has established a rule and order, The chief aim of that order was to give room for good things to run wild. God created order so that goodness can run wild within it. God wants you to have order in your marriage so that goodness can run wild in that relationship. God wants you to have order in your character so that goodness can run wild from out of that. God, he made order first So not only in our hearts, but here in creation, there can be a thriving of life as things abound. Genesis 11, God speaks forth the vegetation and the fruit and the seeds. Genesis 14, he creates the sun and the stars, which brings about the seasons and the years. Genesis 20, God speaks forth the inhabitants of the waters and the the birds of the air. And then Genesis 24, he, he speaks into existence the creatures of the land. But then God does something very different. He changes the way he's operating. See, he's created this divine order for life. He's placed the creatures of land and air and sea within it. But he wants to share this with someone. God is a sharer. And he wants to create someone to to represent him. You see, he's made this world that is beautiful and good. He declared it was. He said it is tov, it is good. He made it an ordered place. And he put somebody in there to keep it that way. He wants to share his creation with someone who will continue his good order in the place that he's created. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Genesis 2 actually tells us that God created human, humanity differently than animals another way. He breathed his breath of life into the nostrils. The ruach, into the human and brought them to life. Job 32.8 says, there is ruach within people. The breath of the Almighty is within you. There is something different, a spirit, a soul, a seed of something that that humanity possesses. God extends to humans this life-giving spirit when they're created and it says they're created in his image male and female, in the image of himself. That statement alone, I mean, let alone the statements about that God created the sun and the moon, which were the major gods and goddesses of all the others, but then this statement, where he made male and female in his own image, would have been shocking and angering. It would have been, I mean, they would have scoffed at it because, first of all, women of that time, of that culture, were property at best, And then you have humans. They weren't created in the image of the gods. They were a a byproduct or an accident. But to claim that male and female are both made in the image of God, that they're image bearers, in that one, here here, right at the first of the Bible, women's rights in that ancient culture took a giant leap forward in the people of God. Because it doesn't say, The woman was created created in man's image. Male and female created in the image of the Almighty. We are both image bearers. And then we learn that these image bearers, God doesn't want to be distant from them. We see that he comes down and he walks in the garden with them. He wants to be with them. He he wants to come down and and share life with them. These are his image bearers, his his co-helpers as he's created order, that they would help keep the order and be good stewards of his earth, be good stewards of his creation, which he told them to be. And here, we th- there are three fundamental truths that jump off the page from Genesis 1 and 2. These three fundamental truths are this Genesis tells us that you were created for presence. God's presence. First and foremost, above all things, Genesis lays out a divine order for your life. And at the top of it, you were created for God's presence. You were created for a relationship. You are have great worth, significance and value to God, and he has you here so that you can have a relationship, you can share with him. He can share life with you. That was the primary design for the humans in Genesis image bearers enjoying a real relationship with God the creator and this is one this is another thing that differs from from genesis from so many other creation epics and accounts you see, uh, so many of the other accounts, most of the ones I read, I, I read many of them, are just full of these battles between gods and goddesses, violence and anger. In fact, um, one from around this very time talks about this god named Marduk who slays his great-grandmother, Tiamat, and he, then he hacks her body apart to form the earth. And the blood dripping from her corpse created you. Congratulations. You see, there's people in all these accounts that, that, that it is just a byproduct of, 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 a, of a lustful affair or a battle or an eruption or an accident that, that people are not created out of love. No, no, no. You see, in the other accounts, in all the other accounts, if those are true, you have no intrinsic value because you are simply a byproduct Of violence or an accident brought about about by eruptions. Bottom line, if those are true, then, then here's what that means. Logically, you have no soul. You have no spirit. There is no nothing special, no ruach apparent within you that makes you different, that sets you apart in the seat below your flesh. You have no great purpose. You have no intrinsic value. You have no significance other than what you can earn by your doing here on earth. You're an accident. You're a byproduct. And you know what? You have no hope for anything beyond the grave. Genesis tells us something profound that they leave out. And it's something that our hearts and souls and our spirits confirm within us that you have value beyond your flesh and bone and instincts that you have loved ones who have value and who have a soul, that you have, you have a soul, that you have a spirit, that there is more to you than cells, that there is something that sets you apart inside of you, that your parents, your children, your loved ones, they possess soul and spirit, and there is value and worth well beyond accident or byproduct. Genesis sets the stage for the rest of the Bible declaring that you were made on purpose for a purpose, out of love. And that you have a spirit within you that cannot be the result of a byproduct or an accident. You were created out of love so that you can go forth in love. You are on this planet by divine design And purpose, which goes back to the reason we first stated why you were created. You were created for presence. You were created for the presence of God. You were created to pursue His presence, to have a relationship with Him. Number two, you were created for people. God not only created woman and man to have a relationship vertically with Him, but that they would have, they created them to have a a horizontal relationship with each other. That's how we're made. God created humans for one another. And we know this, we're image bearers. We are image bearers and God is the author of community. See, because we're made in his image and in his image is the Trinity, where true community is. And so from that true community, we as his image bearers, what do we desire? Community. And not just that we would flock together. No, that we would come together and that we would be known and that we would know others. We have a desire for this. Since humanity is born out of the image of the Trinity, image bearers seek community. Genesis declares that first and foremost, you are here on this planet to love God. You're made for his presence. Second of all, you were here on this planet to love people. And second of all, or thirdly, I guess, if I can count, you were created for a purpose. Adam and Eve were created for something. They had work to do. Again, if if, if they were all an accident, if we're all an accident, there is zero purpose on this planet other than to do as much fun, have as many experiences I can find and gather until I run out of time. But Genesis says that you were born into a purpose. Adam and Eve were told to partner with God to see his purposes done here on earth as his image bearers to represent him in the order and partner with him to do what he wants. The Lord, in the Lord's Prayer, it says, on earth as it is in heaven. That's an extension of this. They, As it was in heaven, they were to order it in, in, on earth. And guess what? You're an extension of that. To bring the goodness of heaven to earth, to bring heaven's love through you to others around you, to bring heaven's peace into your heart and to others as it is in heaven, as his image bearer, I bring him to the earth. And what is from heaven? You aren't, listen, you aren't meant to live a meaningless and frivolous life. You may know people or may have gone through a season where you have felt that and, and the soul-grinding consequences that that kind of belief has on a person's soul is just so sad because we were meant for something greater. We have purpose. We have value and significance. God formed you, created you, and called you, and you have a purpose on this planet. And one of them is, he tells them point blank, go and steward my creation. And that's part of what we're called to do. So our purposes are to pursue his presence on the the earth, to love other people, and then to steward his planet and to steward the gifts that he's given you, the gifts and talents he's placed in you, and to bring others to him as an image bearer that you go forth, bear his image in such a way that people get just a taste of him and they want more. And you can bring people to know Jesus because you're bearing his image to a world around you. Our lives, have a, our lives have a divine order for why we were created. And Genesis lays it out right here. Created for his presence, created for his people, created for his purposes. That is the order laid out in Genesis 1 and 2, that lays out the order for the world. The creation narrative teaches us that work, and leave that up there, that work is subordinate to our relationship with God. Anytime our work becomes more important than our relationship with God, we are out of divine order for our life. Anytime you think you're created for a purpose and your purpose raises above that you were created for his presence, we're out of divine order. Anytime our work becomes more important than other image bearers, then we begin to use people for our purposes and we're out of divine order. You see, we were called to seek God first, to seek his kingdom first, before all things on earth. We are called below seeking him and his kingdom to tend our relationships and other people who bear his image. Then, then, after love God and after love people then we work we recreate and we steward the gifts he has given us and go forth and bear his image to a world that needs to see him genesis declares you were created for presence people and purpose so let's look at i mean as we as we stop as we close here you were created for God's presence above all things That's the first of the divine order. You were created to pursue his presence. You were created for a relationship with the most high God. That is why you were created, first and foremost. So let me ask you, how are you doing with that? Truly, if the divine order says that the first and foremost, you were created to pursue his presence and be in relationship with him, how are we doing today? For me, these things are convicting that I need to go and adjust some things in my life. Tomorrow morning, what would you do differently if you first and foremost said, I am created for his presence? How would your morning routine perhaps change? I want to challenge you not to let these questions stay in this room or wherever you're watching or listening from, but to take this with you, take the divine order with you, write it down, write it on your mirror, write it on a a sticky note, but, but... but address it later in the week. Address it Monday. Am I seeking his presence? Am I living in the divine order? Second of all, you were created to love people. And perhaps this morning you need to be reminded of that. Who do you need to go restore relationship with in your life? Like like, like brass tacks, who do you need to go ask forgiveness from? Husbands? Perhaps it's time we see that God intended you to love your wife above your work. How can we adjust that? How would you need to adjust your heart schedule? Priorities. Wives, perhaps in the list of things to do in your work, your love for your husband has fallen from the divine order that God gave us. How would how we adjust? For any of us that see that our work has risen up the list. How do we replace the presence of the people on there? How are we doing with that? What do we need to actually be and do differently from this? And finally, you were created for a purpose. And I'm not just talking about work, but I am talking about how you have your purpose in work. You have purposes far beyond your career and your job. Your purposes should be present in your career and your job. You are called, you are equipped, and you are empowered by the Ruach Kodesh, the, the Holy Spirit, to go forth. And as an image bearer, bear his image and reveal it to everyone you go to work with, everyone you're at home with, and everyone you're recreating with. Like, how are you doing with your purpose on this planet? You have a purpose as an image bearer to bear his image so that people can know him, to further his kingdom, to go forth and bring heaven to earth. Like, 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 what does that mean? Unconditional heavenly love should flow through you and people should n- see some of the image of God because how you love them differently. We need to be source of peace to a world that is shaken by politics and polarization. As image bearers, we don't need to be shaken by that. And beyond that, it says don't just be at peace. Image bearers, it says for us to be peacemakers. listen, As an image bearer, you should be a dealer of hope, not gossip. You should be a dealer of hope to people around you, just constantly breathing hope into people's sails, showing them that there is hope beyond their their problems. As an image bearer, giving the hope of Christ to people. This is just an intro to Genesis. We have so much in store for us as we go through this, but I want us to stop right here in the in first two chapters where there's so many things we could teach on and address just this. How are we doing with the divine order of presence, people, and purpose? I want you to take some time on this. And here's why. Because when you adjust your life to the divine order of God, great things will run wild in your life when you adjust your life to the divine order of God, great things will run wild in your marriage, in your relationships. Great things will run rampant in your character, in your holiness, in your business if we adjust ourselves to the divine order of God Almighty as he placed it here in Genesis. Let me pray for us. Father God, your word is beautiful. Thank you so much we thank you that right here, you established some orders for us. And I pray for, for us, the orchard, that you would not let us leave this here in this time easily, but that you would pursue us with this, that we would look to live a life that runs on the order of heaven that you've given us. Help us to pursue your presence. Help us to, to love people and help us to be on your purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.